Uh, good morning. We're tilting a little bit to this side. I think we'll be all right. Today I'd like to uh, speak about something that has been on my heart for a long time, actually. Um, back in 1993, which is before some of you were maybe even born, we, uh, we used to do a, we still do an adult VBS here in the summer. We did one on the miracles of Christ. And uh, so I was one of the 10 or so people that were involved in teaching that. And uh, I've been thinking about the miracles of Christ ever since then. When I was asked to um, be the speaker at a conference in the Philippines last September, I took up that subject um, in more detail. And I'd like to share with you this morning some of the things that uh, we did uh, together with uh, the group of missionaries there in the Philippines. So we'll be, we'll be looking at the subject of the miracles of Christ. Um, I'm going to try to compress into just uh, 35 minutes what, what we did over a period of three days. So, uh, so we'll, it'll be sort of a, a sketchy overview. What we'll, what we'll do this morning, I'd like, to, I'd like to make the point this morning, if there's nothing else you take away, this is the point I'd like you to remember. And that is that when God does miracles, he does it to communicate to us. It's a communication device. We learn something from his miracles. They're not just random acts of magic. They're, uh, they're with a specific purpose for communication. And so what I'd like to do is just give a little overview of the, uh, the miracles that Christ performed when he was here on earth. And then I'd look, like to look at three specific miracles, each of which shows a different aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. In each of these miracles, he communicates something about himself. So we'll learn three different things. We'll learn that Jesus Christ is a sovereign. We'll learn that he's sufficient. And we will learn that he is savior. Now, these aren't the only three things that the Lord communicated as he did miracles over the course of his ministry here on earth. But um, there are three that certainly stand out in my own mind uh, and that uh, have really blessed me over the years as I've thought about them. We'll look at those three. And then what I'd like to do, um, if you stay for lunch, and we, uh, we have our brief uh, session after that, what we'll do is uh, I would like to just take a few minutes to talk about what a miracle is. Because... If you were to try to answer that question, you could kind of get yourself bogged down after a few minutes trying to figure out what an exact definition of a miracle is. It's sort of obvious when I say miracle. Everybody thinks they know what a miracle is. But what is a miracle and how does it relate to the Enlightenment and modern science? And how should I think about miracles? And uh, especially in the day that we live in today when most of our culture would just uh, deprecate miracles and say there's no such thing. So we'll just take that for a few minutes. And then what I'd like to do is give a chance for some interaction with uh, what we uh, will be doing in the next 35 minutes. And I want to give you a chance to uh, think of other lessons that we might learn from the three miracles that we'll discuss together now, or other miracles 
that illustrate the three characteristics that we'll talk about now, or other miracles that illustrate other characteristics. And uh, if you come, I'll be handing out a list of all of Jesus' miracles, and a list you can take home with you, and uh, that'll help us to frame the discussion. Now, it's not a long session. It may sound like it's going to be long, but we, we limit it to about uh, 30, 35 minutes. So, um, so we'll just get through what we can. But it should be interesting to do that. So the reason I mentioned that in advance is that as we're going through these three, this is sort of a, a one-way conversation here where I'm doing the talking and you're listening, but you can be thinking, if you are going to stay, you can be thinking of those things that I just mentioned. Namely, are there other lessons that we learn from the miracles that we'll be taking up? And are there other miracles that illustrate the lessons that we're taking up? So you can be just thinking about that in your head and you might say, oh yeah, but that other miracle, that shows the same thing. So just keep that in mind and then uh, you can bring that up a little later. So Jesus performed about um, 35, 37 miracles. Depends how you count them. And uh, there's lots of lists. You can Google it and you'll find lots of lists of miracles of the Lord Jesus. Um, it depends how you count them. Um, sometimes he, there's sort of broad statements about healing a lot of people, and so does, does that count as a single miracle, and, and so on. So there, that's why there's some discrepancies. But roughly speaking, there's about 35 miracles. Um, about about one-sixth of the four Gospels taken together, about one-sixth, this is stats, I always have to do stats, right? <laughs> about one-sixth of the Gospels is occupied by just talking about the miracles of Christ. Verses that are exclusively descriptions of the things that he did, about one-sixth. They're very important in the story of Jesus. Um, there's about uh, 20 miracles in Matthew, 20 in Mark, 20 in Luke, but only eight or nine in John. Uh, John, as we know, is quite different than the other three Gospels. And, uh, and there's some overlap, but there's some uniqueness, too. Uh, for example, uh, all of the miracles but one in John only appears in John. And there's some miracles that appear uniquely in Matthew, uniquely in Mark, and uniquely in Luke. I've got all the numbers, but you don't care about that. Uh, there's only one miracle, however, that's recorded in all four Gospels. Only one. Does anybody know what it is? Feeding of the 5,000. Throw that woman a lollipop. Uh, feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's mentioned in all four Gospels. Very well attested, and that's one of the three that we'll take up this morning. So Jesus did miracles. He did it certainly to validate his claim that he was God himself. Um, but he also did it to show us characteristic, specific things about himself. Um, and uh, one of the, one of the uh, last things that Jesus said, or the, 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 the last thing that John said was this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. So 35 to 37 miracles, and we think, wow, that, if I could do even one miracle, that would be amazing. And Jesus did 35. And in fact, John says at the end of his gospel, there are many other things that Jesus did, 
were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So if you could write down everything that the Lord did, uh, it just must have been so amazing to be one of the one of the followers of Jesus, one of the 12 that followed him around all the time. And just day after day seeing miracles. I mean, if, you could, if I could see one miracle, I think I have seen miracles in my life, but if I could see one miracle of the sort that Jesus did uh, in my life, I would be thrilled. But to see it day after day after day, uh, it's really something to think about when you're reading through the Gospels. So the, th- the three characteristics that I'd like to talk about are, first of all, that Jesus shows himself to be sovereign. And let's look in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, and we'll just read a few verses there that describe one of the great miracles that he did, the calming of the storm. So we'll look in Matthew, chapter 8, and uh, we'll go to uh, verse 18 where it says that now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So he'd been very uh, busy uh, preaching to the crowds, teaching them, uh, doing miracles, and he was tired. Um, That in itself is a beautiful fact that um, though he was God, he was man as well, and he got tired. And so if we skip down to verse 23, it says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. It's the Sea of Galilee. So it's, it's big. What would it be like? Um, well, I'm not sure. It's, uh, you can see the other side, but it is, it is big, and it is a lake. It's not the ocean. Uh, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, that is the Lord Jesus, was asleep. So he's sleeping through the storm. And when they went... And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there arose a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So this is... uh, this is all set in a very natural setting. There was some unnatural things happening earlier in the day with the Lord healing people. But now, this is all very natural, getting into a boat, they're tired, the Lord falls asleep, they're going across the sea. It's all very natural. And so that highlights the very unnatural thing that happens next. It's a storm. It's quite a scary storm. And uh, I've never been caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. I was in a boat on the Sea of Galilee once in my life, but it was a beautiful, calm uh, Sunday morning, in fact. And uh, we had uh, a lovely little trip on the Sea of Galilee out of Tiberias. But uh, apparently, the storms on that lake can be quite violent and quite sudden. And that's what happened. So they weren't expecting it. And suddenly, in the middle of the night, they're going across there, and it, it blows up. And uh, uh, Jesus is sleeping through the storm. So that indicates he was quite tired because uh, it was a rough storm. And so then what happens? He wakes, uh, they wake him up, and they're scared. 
and he rises up and rebukes the wind. And there was a great calm. In the Gospel of Mark, it says, he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said to the wind and the sea, peace, be still. So let's try to picture that. Here's the Lord, and they wake him up, and he's uh, standing there in, the, in this fishing boat, and he looks out at the storm, and he cries out in a loud voice, peace, be still. Now, what would you think if you saw that? <laughs> this is nuts. Like, what's he doing? And miraculously, something that just, there's no other explanation for this. You can't give a scientific explanation of this. Suddenly, the lake was calm again. It was flat. The middle of a storm, he stands up in the boat, he shouts out, peace be still, and suddenly it's completely flat. <clears throat> and they, they marveled, and they said, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey them? obey him. And in the Luke account, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He said this to him after he calmed the storm. Why are you still afraid? Have you still no faith? Have, have, I said that wrong. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Yeah, that's what he said. Um, so, they would have understood something about the Lord. They had seen miracles. Just a few hours early, they'd seen him doing miracles, miracles of healing. So they understood something about his power. So what was it that they were lacking in faith here? What was it that they didn't understand about this? You know that old question. What is it, what is it that you, don't, you say to your kids? What is it that you don't understand about the word no? You know, what is it that you don't understand about me? You have no faith, or you, you lack faith. Well, what it was, what they were lacking, was a full understanding of who he was. And let's not be critical of them. Imagine what it would be like to be the disciples, to be with him, to see him doing miracles. What would you think if you were with someone nowadays that could, could heal? let's say, and you were traveling with them and you saw them healing, what would you think of that person? Well, you'd think that it was some spiritual thing and that they were empowered by God with some spiritual um, ability to do miracles. But you wouldn't think that they could do, that they were actually God themselves, that they were sovereign themselves, that they had not only control over people that were sick, but control over everything. You wouldn't think that. That was their lack of faith. They still hadn't understood this. It took them a long time to come to terms with this. And of course, when the Lord died on the cross, that really shook their faith. Because as they built up this understanding over the course of his ministry about who he was, and they, they came gradually to realize that he was actually sovereign that he was sovereign over all creation, to see him uh, murdered so cruelly on the cross was a, a profound um, 
sort of stab in their heart to what they were, what they were believing. So this is what he wanted to show them, that he was sovereign over all of creation. Of course, we read in, in uh, Colossian, Colossians that, um, and, and in Hebrews that he is, the, uh, he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. So he's sovereign over it in a much greater way than he illustrated right there, even though that was very great what he did calming the wind and the storm. By the way, if you think about that, nowadays, um, how much can we influence the weather? A little bit, right? We can, they, they um, uh, there's, you can seed clouds. I believe they've done that with, with airplanes. You can uh, seed clouds, and you can maybe cause a little bit of rain by uh, seeding clouds. I'm not sure exactly how that's done. I haven't looked it up, but I've heard of that. Not recently, but I remember hearing about it in the past. So little, little tiny bit, you can affect the weather. But <laughs> compare that with what the Lord did. He just stopped it right there. That implies complete control over the entire domain over the Sea of Galilee. All, of the, all the molecules in the air, you know, going up and around and around the Sea of Galilee, it implies complete control over all those molecules. And what Colossians and Hebrews is telling us is that he has control of all the molecules in the universe. And he's holding those all in existence at all times. So it's much more magnificent <clears throat> than what is being illustrated here. I want to come back to this point in a moment about um, how much the Lord actually does and how much he could do. So that shows us the Lord's sovereignty, his supremacy over creation. Let's think for a moment about his sufficiency. And for this one, I want to <clears throat> think about, um, we'll read the, the one, the feeding of the 5,000. We'll read the Matthew account in Matthew 14. So if you want to turn to that, you can. In Matthew chapter 14, uh, I'll just tell you there, it's, in, it's also in Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6. Um, we read about how the Lord fed a large crowd of people. So here we are in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. <clears throat> and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. <clears throat> so Jesus um, withdrew from his teaching in uh, verse 13. Uh, again, probably because he was tired. And they went on a boat 
And if you look at a map, you'll see that uh, where they were, uh, the people who wanted to follow on land would have had to cross the Jordan River. This is the Jordan River north of the Sea of Galilee. Normally, when we think of the Jordan River, remember the Israelites crossed the Jordan when they entered the Promised Land. That's, that's in between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, south of there. But this is the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and the, the river's much smaller there, and uh, it would be shallow enough in spots that they could get across it. So they were just getting across in sort of more wilderness area there as you get a little more um, to the east. And, but they followed him. They could see him out on the boat. They didn't have boats. There were a lot of them. It says there were 5,000 men, plus there were women and children. So how many people were there all together? Well, let's just guess and say 10,000. Um, could have been more than that but let's just let's estimate at 10,000 people. So that's a crowd of 10,000 people. That's a big crowd. Think of a stadium that seats 10,000 people, and it's full. Okay, that's the size of the crowd. So there they are, 10,000 people. They're following on land. The Lord's trying to get away into sort of a remoter part, probably to withdraw with his disciples, and then maybe even withdraw from them and go and pray, which is something that he does uh, quite often. And... Uh, but he gets no relief because the people follow on land and they're waiting for him there when he lands the boat. And he doesn't send them away and he doesn't, he doesn't try and scoot away from them, but he stays there and he spends time with them and he teaches uh, and heals. He has compassion. Just that in itself is so lovely. He has compassion. Um, and uh, there's a uh, a clue, by the way, to this afternoon, there's another characteristic of the Lord that he tries to show in his miracles, namely his compassion, another C word. Um, so anyway, he's, he's over there, and uh, the day is going on, and the sun is, is uh, getting lower in the sky, and these people are all distance from home. They still have to cross the river to go back and get back to their hometown, and, uh, and they need food. And so the Lord uh, says, well, you feed them. Now, that is a whole lesson in itself, but we won't go into that. Um, he asked, what have we got? And, of course, he knew full well what they had, what was there. He knew full well what he was going to do. But uh, the, the disciples said, well, we have five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them to me. Now, he orders the crowds to sit down uh, in the grass and... Uh, probably groups, right? You can sit them down in, in groups. I, I try to imagine how this miracle occurred, like what actually happened. Like what would you see if you were there? What would you have seen if you were there at this miracle? And now if you try to picture this, it just makes it such a wonderful miracle. So there they are, they're seated down, uh, 10,000 people, and they're sitting in groups, what, 50? 50 in a group, maybe, let's say. That would be 200 groups, Am I, if I'm doing my multiplication right. Am I doing my multiplication right? 10,000, yeah. 200 groups, 200 groups of 50 people. So like, just imagine them spread out around here. That's a lot, right? 2,000. And so he takes the, the loaves and the fish and he, 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 he puts his head up or down. He closes his eyes and he prays and he thanks the Lord for this food. Now try to just picture that. You've got all these people seated waiting to be fed, and there's the Lord with five loaves and two fishes, and he's giving thanks for it. And all the people are thinking, what's happening here? Like, this doesn't make any sense at all. And he thanks them for it, 
And then he takes, maybe he passes one loaf to each of the five closest groups. All right, so the group receives the loaf of bread, and there's 50 people and one loaf. And they're still thinking to themselves, what's going on here? And all the other groups are thinking, what's going on here? Because those five got it, and we didn't get anything. And so you look now, sit down with the group, and imagine what happened in the loaf. There it is. And earlier this morning, we broke a loaf, and we passed it around. And everybody's very abstemious when we pass the loaf around, and they take a little bit out of it. But these people were hungry, so they probably took a big chunk out of it. Fifty people, one loaf going around. It would disappear pretty quickly. And yet it didn't disappear. I don't know if it was when they were, one person was handing it to the next and sort of bread got generated inside the bread or something and they passed it and somehow the loaf wasn't getting smaller as it went around. In fact, when it got to the last person out of those 50, it was still a full loaf and they were able to pass it on to the next group. A full loaf onto the next group and and so in the other five that they started with. The same thing with the fish, of course. And then the same thing happens again and again. And the people that are further out are just astonished. They can't believe it. There were only five loaves and more, and it's getting closer and closer to them. And the ones on the perimeter who thought they would get nothing, the bread's coming and it's multiplying. And maybe there's two loaves somehow when a group finishes with it. So they can pass it off to two. I don't know how it actually happened, but it must have been something like that. Because it wasn't suddenly that everybody was instantly full. That's not, that wasn't the miracle. That, and the Lord could have done that, by the way. He could have made everybody full and not hungry anymore. Right? He could have filled their bellies. He didn't need five loaves and two fishes to do this. That was for their sake, so that they could see that it was definitely him that was doing it. That in itself is a beautiful thought about this, about this great miracle. So he didn't need to do that, but he did it, and it kept multiplying and multiplying as it went around until finally everybody was full. And now here's the point I want to make, how much food was left over. Twelve baskets. And we're used to thinking of twelve baskets of food. You know, there, there was so much food that there was a lot left over. Well, there's almost nothing left over. What's twelve divided into ten thousand? Well, let's say, let's say 12,000, just to make the division easier. Suppose there were 12,000 people. There were 12 baskets of food left over. That is, for each 1,000 people, there was one basket of food left over. Now, you, you spill a little bit, you know, here and there. You spill food when you're, when you're eating it. You make a mess. You go to the stadium with those 12,000 people, and when they all leave, somebody has to come around and clean up after them, and there's food all over the place, right? Way more than 12 baskets worth of food. There's only one basket of food for every thousand people there. There was almost nothing left over. And what does that mean? That means that the Lord produced for those people exactly what was needed. And that's what I mean by the Lord being sufficient. This miracle communicated that the Lord is sufficient, is exactly sufficient for our needs. It was important that something was left over because that's an indication that nobody went hungry. There was enough for everybody, but the fact that there was so little left over shows that there was exactly enough for everybody. Isn't that fantastic? 
The Lord is sufficient for our needs. Now, I want to tell you that the Lord does that in many of his miracles. He shows this idea of sufficiency. He does what's needed. And one way to ask yourself if that's happening in a miracle that you're reading about is to ask yourself the question, what could he have done? As I say, he could have made everybody full. He could have made everybody in Israel full that evening. I mean, if he really is sovereign, if he really does control the universe, he could have made everybody in Israel full. He could have made everybody in Israel full for a week. He could have made everybody in Israel full for the rest of their lives and never need to eat again. He could have made everybody in the world full for the rest of their lives and never have, and everybody in the future, including us. I mean, just try to think what the Lord can do and what he does. And it shows how perfectly sufficient he is for our needs. And we always worry about the things that are happening to us in our lives. And we worry about the Lord caring for us. We worry when we get into financial difficulty, uh, times of leanness. Um, We worry about our reaction to times of, of abundance. We worry about so many things, but we forget that the Lord is perfectly sufficient for our needs. He's sovereign and he's sufficient. And finally, the Lord is a savior. One of the beautiful miracles that illustrates that is in Matthew chapter 9, and it's the healing of the paralytic. So let's read that now. now. It's the first seven verses of Matthew chapter 9. And once again, there's a boat involved in this miracle. And getting into a boat, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Arise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So here Jesus is in his hometown in uh, Capernaum. You say, I thought Nazareth was his hometown. Well, that's where he grew up. But it seems that by the time that he was uh, an adult and had left home and he was engaged in this ministry of his for three years in that area, that he was living in Capernaum. Capernaum's right also, it's also right at the top of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And uh, this could possibly have been even in his own house or in the house that he was living in. Um, We don't know, we're not told, but it's possible. And uh, as is often the case, there are crowds of um, doubters around him. Uh, There are often crowds of people who love him and love to hear his teaching and love to get involved in the things that he is communicating and uh, and, um, discipling. But... There's also doubters. These were Pharisees and lawyers and scribes. They were the officials of that culture. And they were 
crowded into this home, possibly Jesus' home, and they were listening to him preach. And they, we know from uh, lots of passages in the New Testament that they were trying to catch him. They were trying to catch him out, figure out uh, uh, why, he, why he seemed to be so authoritative. Like, what's his trick? What's his gimmick? So there's this paralytic, and they they can't get near the place. It's just totally crowded. You can picture it. If you close your eyes, you can imagine this uh, humble house on some street, narrow street in Capernaum, and you can imagine uh, you you turn onto the street as you're walking through the town, and, and you see down the road there, there's just a buzz right outside one of the houses. Everything else is like normal, but that one house, there's like people standing in the doorway, and and craning their necks and trying to look in. Uh, you know, you've seen that sometimes. You walk in a downtown area and you see a restaurant, right? And all the other restaurants, there's nobody in it, but there's just one restaurant and it's really crowded inside. And there's people standing inside waiting and there's people standing outside waiting. And that's what this would have been like as they, as they uh, if you were to come down the street. So there they are. They're, they're in the house, and Jesus is teaching and apparently remaining calm, cool, and collected, as he always does, um, except when he's cleansing the temple, I guess. And uh, <clears throat> he's in there, and these friends bring the paralytic. They're carrying him, and they can't even get near the house because it's so crowded. And so they do the obvious thing that you would do if you couldn't get into a restaurant, say. You just go and take the roof off of it. So this is a very strange thing, actually. I, I don't really understand this. It, it surely can't have been a common practice to get into someone's house by taking the roof off or making a hole in the roof. But it would be easier at that time than it is nowadays where we use shingles, and sometimes we have solar panels. Back then they had these uh, tiles, I guess, or maybe it was uh, thatch. I don't know what the houses would have had on them, but it would have been easier to... Um, bust a hole in the roof, and so that's what they did. They, they uh, somehow they made a hole, and so now, now we have to picture ourselves being among the people who actually got into the house. So we're in there, and we're listening to the Lord, and we're talking to him, and maybe talking to each other, and suddenly it gets lighter in the house. There's a lot more light coming in. And we look up, and there's a hole in the roof, and there's some guys up there, and they lower, they're starting to lower somebody on ropes, which is itself is quite, a, quite an awkward thing. You know, all, all of his friends have to hold equally on the ropes, or he's going to spill off. And they're, they're, um, they're lowering him down, and so we might have to step back to make room for this body that's coming down on a mat on ropes and it gets set on the ground all right so that's the scene you've got the friends on the roof they've seen a lot of healing they know that the lord can heal they have a great deal of faith that he can do this they lower their friend the paralytic down through the roof you have all the people who have seen the lord heal and they expect him to heal and so uh, they're thinking, you're thinking, because you're there. You're thinking to yourself, oh, this is terrific. Uh, enough of all this uh, 
words and teaching. Let's see a miracle. And so you're ready for a healing. And what happens? What does the Lord do? He says, and I quote, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. It was probably related to the conversation that he'd been having with the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers. We're not told that, but that's, that's a reasonable guess. But he doesn't do what everybody's expecting, the people on the roof and the people in the house, namely doing a healing. He says, take heart, my sons, your sins are forgiven. Well, of course, he did that uh, on purpose. He knew full well he was going to perform this miracle, but he did it for the sake of the scribes. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now, why was he blaspheming? Well, he was blaspheming because he was claiming that he could forgive sins, which is to say he was claiming to have the power and authority of God himself, which is to say he was claiming to be God himself. And of course that's blasphemy, if it's not true. But it was true. <laughs> that's the thing, you see. And he can forgive sins. So he said that to put a, to put a point on it. He knows, and in fact he intends, to, that he can heal this man. He knows he can do that. And that will illustrate something about his sovereignty. And he's about to do it. But there's something much more profound than that. And that is that he can forgive sins. He wants to teach that every person has a much bigger problem than their physical infirmities. We all have physical infirmities. And some of them are minor and some of them are major. Some of them we've told people about and some of them we haven't. Some of them we're ashamed about. We all have physical infirmities. We all have need to be healed physically in some way or another, or emotionally or mentally. We all have those needs. But the Lord teaches us here that there's a much greater the need than that. It's the need for spiritual healing. It's the need for reconciliation with God. It's the need to be able to have even a relationship with God. That's what he wants to tell them by saying this statement first. Now, he really was forgiving the man. And when they challenge him, he says, okay, so you think that I've done something simple here. All I've done is just blaspheme against God. Anybody can do that, right? That's what you're thinking, he says to them, in effect. I mean, that's the subtext. He says, you think it would be a cop-out for me to say your sins are forgiven because then I don't have to heal them physically. He's saying, the subtext again is that the physical healing is actually the easier thing to do. And just to show you, I'll do the easier thing. But I've just done the harder thing. 
You see, he says, of course, he tells the man to get up and walk, and all of the people get what they came for. They see a miracle. And here's this man lying on a pallet, and he, they, they all know him. It's a small town, and uh, they've never seen him walk before. He's paralyzed. Think of somebody, for example, with like quadriplegic. He's just paralyzed, and he stands up. He goes home takes the pallet with him so it's not taking up space in the house. I hope his friends sealed up the roof. But he leaves. And so that proves that he can do the greater thing, which is he can heal the spiritual brokenness of this man. Isn't that remarkable? He teaches through this miracle of physical healing that he is a savior that he can solve the greatest problem that man has, namely spiritual disconnect with God. He can solve that. He can save the person. And I always cringe when I say the word saved because it's, it's become such a laughingstock, that word, in our modern culture. People make fun of it all the time. Oh, he's saved. Oh, you're saved. But it's the right word. He's the Savior. He has saved us. We were desperate. We were, we were on a raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And for hundreds of miles around us, there was nothing. And he's come by in a big uh, luxury yacht, and he's pulled us out of the water, and he saved us. He really has saved us if we put our faith in him. So do you see what I mean about the Lord communicating various uh, characteristics of himself in these miracles? It, he's not just doing the miracle to establish his, his credentials, although he is doing that. But it's not just that. He's also showing us things about himself. So we saw, for example, in the first miracle that he was sovereign, and in the second one that he's sufficient, and the third one that he's savior. You know, you think about um, heroes. There's a lot about uh, heroes these days. Joey has left, but he loves the, uh, the um, superheroes, doesn't he? Um, and you think about superheroes, and they all have different powers. Like you've got, uh, you know, f uh, well, I can't remember any of them. The Flash and <laughs> um, Superman and... And so on. There's all the, they're all escaping my, the Marvel Universe, you know, Captain America, all these uh, superheroes, and they all have powers, you know, like one might be able to freeze things with his eyes, another can burn things with his eyes. They've all got superpowers. Wouldn't it be amazing if one superhero had all the powers? Well, there is one. There is one that has all the superpowers, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn that as we read through the miracles of Christ. We see all these superpowers. Well, not the burning eyes, because he doesn't need to use burning eyes. Remember, he's sufficient. He's always sufficient. He doesn't need to do that dramatic kind of thing. That is such a great principle to think about that. Like, you think about the, um, when he does things like uh, heals the man by um, making some clay and spitting on it and putting it in his eye. 
There's no magic going on there. It's not magic spit or magic clay or anything like that. I just need to do that. But, but he does it for the sake of the man so that, so that the, the man and the people who are watching all around can see where the power comes from. It's for their sakes, not because there's, there's some magic formula going on. The Lord is like this in all of his miracles. He's just, they're perfect. Each miracle is perfect. And it shows us something about him and about his character. And he is the superhero of superheroes. The Bible doesn't say that, but it does say he's the king of kings. And he does say he's the lord of lords. And I like to think he's the superhero of superheroes. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you today as the king of kings and lord of lords. And we love the, to read about the perfect life that you lived here on earth. And we love to read about your, your miracles how you did them and why you did them and, and what you showed by them. And we just see that you are a beautiful Savior, that you are uh, sovereign over all nature, over all the world, that you are um, sufficient for all of our needs. And we see that you are our Savior. And we want to thank you for that this morning. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.